This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Bible League. Your gift of $35 will send seven Bibles to Christians in need, and your gift of $100 will send 20 Bibles. And right now, with a matching gift, your gift will be doubled. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Welcome, everybody. What is the future of the conservative movement? Well, nobody knows for sure, but scholars at the American Enterprise Institute say that the next effective Republican governing philosophy likely won't be called reform conservatism. In any case, they say in a recent National Review piece, a conservative governing agenda needs to be rooted in what voters want and in what the core ideals of the American Republic demand of both the public and its government. We're going to talk about this right now with Matthew Continetti, who is resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Matthew, it's great to have you with us. How are you? I'm well. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. How would you assess the state of political conservatism right now? Would you say it's in the midst of a shift? Well, I think it's been um, undergoing a shift for some time. And uh, I think it's been moving in a direction that's more populist, um, that's more religious, uh, and that's more nationalist. Uh, Even before Donald Trump uh, ran for president in 2016, and so I expect those changes to continue, uh, even if uh, President Trump uh, leaves the stage at some point. Right. So now when you say it's become more populist, specifically, what are you talking about? Well, I'm talking about an anti-establishment uh, mentality, uh, the idea that uh, elites throughout our society, whether they're in business, uh, whether they're in culture or media, or even in the Republican Party, um, have not been responsive to uh, the American people. And so this has been, um, uh, was evident with the Tea Party rebellion. I think you saw some of it in the um, reception that Sarah Palin received when she was named the vice presidential running, uh, running mate in 2008. And, of course, you see it with the embrace not only of Donald Trump in 2016, but also, let's not forget, uh, of Ted Cruz as well, who was also an anti-establishment candidate. Yeah, that's right. Well, nationalism, now this has become a buzz term of sorts because people will define it differently. Sometimes it's hurled as an insult. Oh, you're nationalist and you're alt-right. And, you know, some of these lines get blurred when these words are thrown around. But, you know, at least in my lifetime, when you look at the conservative side of the aisle, this has always been a very pro-America, patriotic group of voters who have supported the Republican Party. When you say more nationalist, how do you how do you define that? How do you see the the conservative movement becoming more nationalist than it was previously? Sure. Well, uh, on one level, uh, there's the rejection of, um, say, uh, global trade, uh, a more protectionist attitude, a more um, skeptical attitude toward. Uh, uh, international institutions like NAFTA um, or even NATO. Um, at another level, you're absolutely right. Patriotism, pride in our country has always been part of the conservative movement in America. Now I think you're also seeing more attention uh, drawn to kind of our national symbols, you know, a defense of the flag, a defense mm-hmm. of the national anthem, um, a real um, uh, kind of respect for uh, our common language, English, and also our common history, 
which seems to be under attack um, from the left right. Uh, right now. Yeah, you're right. So when we talk about the phrase reform conservatism, how is that best defined? Well, uh, the reform conservatives were a group of uh, policy wonks uh, who about uh, half a dozen years ago now um, decided that the kind of agenda of the Republican Party needed to be updated uh, to kind of confront the challenges uh, facing the American people at that time. Of course, 2014 seems like a, you know, a different universe um, <laughs> when looked at uh, from the perspective of today. Right. That's true. So this was something that really started in George W. Bush's second term and grew throughout the Obama years. But what sort of effect do you think the changes of the last several years will make on the future of reform conservatism? And what would you say really defines it policy-wise? Well, I do think that um, with the reform conservatives, there was more um, an emphasis on uh, government programs um, to kind of address kind of the economic concerns of uh, middle-class Americans. And so there was kind of, um, you know, not less of a kind of Tea Party um, call for limited government and more of an idea that, you know, with specific policies um, that conservatives could update the agenda and not just um, campaign so much, say, on calls for, for tax cuts. That was the idea. I think uh, it was a flawed idea uh, because it didn't address one of the main concerns of a lot of Americans uh, beginning in George W. Bush's second term. You're absolutely right. And that was kind of the um, state of our southern border and unchecked immigration to this country. Yes, yes. So it was President Trump who really put that issue on the table. And I think, ironically, even though uh, he was not allied with the reform conservatives, he... um, created the conditions in which people can really think anew about uh, conservatism, about the Republican agenda, and um, you know what, what the GOP or the conservative movement should do in the coming years. Yeah. Now, also, when you guys talk about this current policy paralysis, what has caused that? And what would you say the areas of policy are that have been somewhat neglected by the conservative movement? Because as your scholars have pointed out, we haven't seen a big agenda necessarily from the Republicans in the last few years. There's a lot of this attitude that we can't get it done anyway, so why even try? They weren't able to over return Obamacare, for example, but it doesn't seem like they're in a big agenda mood other than getting conservative justices on the bench. No, that's absolutely right. Um, I, I'm not really sure the answer to that. I mean, there have been plenty of times in the past where uh, ambitious lawmakers um, kind of you know, presented a new idea and uh, spent a lot of time uh, attempting to convince their colleagues uh, of the worth of that idea. And the example that just um, springs to mind is Jack Kemp uh, really embracing the idea of uh, an across-the-board tax cut uh, that became the centerpiece of Ronald Reagan's economic plan. Mm-hmm. Of course, that was, you know, 40 years ago. <laughs> so um, oh, yep. in this time, um, you know, we had a very kind of uh, defensive approach. We said we wanted to undo basically everything Obama had done, and we were right to try to undo all those things. What was missing were any affirmative uh, programs other than of course, the uh, the tax cut. Um, and so I think one reason there's been a kind of a, a lack of new ideas is Congress is uh, honestly less important now. Hmm. Um, the, the bureaucracy and the judges are the two institutions that really govern most of America. Yeah. And so uh, that's why I think you've seen such a focus on getting the judicial nominees through. 
and also kind of um, uh, the you know President Trump's use of uh, executive orders and executive authority to address uh, things like building the border wall. Right, but that that in and of itself is something that it would seem Congress needs to rise to the occasion to deal with. The fact that you're seeing Congress kind of becoming more irrelevant, I'm not saying they're irrelevant, but conceding power almost, as it were, to judges and to the bureaucracy, the deep state, as some people will call it, shouldn't Congress be doing more, and really in particular, shouldn't Republican congressmen and senators be doing more to change that, in fact, by you know going forward with certain policies to take back more of that power, is that even feasible or possible? I think there are some young legislators who would like to see that. I, mean, I think of Mike Gallagher uh, from Wisconsin in the House, and I think of Ben Sass uh, of Nebraska in the Senate. Um, but uh, the, the moment uh, for any real congressional reform has passed because mm. that, that moment was uh, in the first two years of the Trump presidency, and. Um, uh, that just wasn't on the agenda. So it's a tragedy, I think, because I do agree with you that it is Congress is the first branch of government in the Constitution for a reason. It's supposed to be the most important branch. It's supposed to be the lawmaking branch. But instead, it's just spent a lot of its time uh, over the last several decades delegating its authority uh, to the president and to the uh, executive branch. Right. And it would seem to me that it's a little bit scary to consider that just as the progressives are really ramping up these radical policies, the Republicans are just in defense mode. Not that I'm against defending against progressivism. I am for that. But wouldn't it also be prudent for them to have bold policies themselves so they will show that they're not merely on the defense all the time? It would, and I think that's one reason that uh, the scholars at the American Enterprise Institute were kind of putting out this uh, clarion call uh, for um, kind of rethinking conservatism. Um, and, uh, you know, if right now, it's, uh, in the midst of this crisis uh, of coronavirus, we're seeing, I think, some real visions and bold action on the part of younger uh, senators in particular on the right. You're right. Matthew, hang on just a moment. We're going to take a very short break. We'll be back with Matthew Continetti from the American Enterprise Institute. Stay with us. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. From now through April, Janet Meffer today is partnering with Bible League to send 1,200 Bibles to persecuted Christians around the world. Can you help? Your gift of $35 will send seven Bibles to Christians in need, and your gift of $100 will send 20 Bibles. And right now, with a matching gift, your gift will be doubled. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 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 or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. When I found out I was pregnant, I was devastated. I had no idea what to do. When a young mom faces an unplanned pregnancy, she's confused and scared. Society tells her that a baby is not a life and offers termination as the best solution. Preborn centers shine light into the darkness by offering young moms in crisis hope, love, and life and an ultrasound to meet their preborn baby. As soon as I get there, I felt welcome. They gave me the first look at my baby by providing a free ultrasound. 
Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country and the direct competition to Planned Parenthood. Will you join Preborn in helping love and support young moms in crisis? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds and help save five babies' lives. To donate, call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. All gifts are tax deductible. 855-402-2229. Or there's a Preborn banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. Matthew Continenti from the American Enterprise Institute is my guest, and we're talking about the future of the conservative movement, some realignments taking place in the last several years. We've got those who support President Trump. We're in an era of Trumpism, but what of reform conservatism, those policy wonks over the last several years who really believed that the GOP agenda needed to be updated? We're talking about some of these issues. So in terms of rethinking conservatism, Matthew, what do you think is important for the conservative movement to do in that regard, what sorts of policies need to be moved to the front burner, as it were? Well, from my perspective, and I'm not sure it's, uh, I'm speaking for all of the uh, scholars who were behind this article and discussion, but from my perspective is uh, I think that uh, the conservative movement needs to keep in mind the principles of human dignity and individual freedom. And in those principles, uh, then we need to look at uh, really kind of the challenges facing uh, Americans, and in particular working Americans. Um, when you look at uh, the Republican Party, it has become a party of uh, working people, um, people um, who are tradesmen, small businessmen. Mm-hmm. And I think we should um, pattern our, our, our responses with those people in mind. So um, that's why I think it's been good to see a senator like Josh Hawley say that, you know, the workers should come first the executive second in any um, stimulus plan that the Congress is um, uh, deliberating over today. Well, right. And you're really getting to the essence of something that has been very reminiscent, I think, of Ronald Reagan, and that was he was able to draw in the working man uh, in a way that we had not seen with previous Republicans to the same extent. And obviously, the times were different during the 80s than they are now. But in that regard, we have a totally different situation. Now, you mentioned the coronavirus crisis, and now we've got this big government intervention that's taking place. Many people are referring to it as a relief agenda, not so much an intervention in the economy as much as they're just trying to help out people who are really going to suffer if this goes on for a while. What comes of this, do you think? Economically, how might this change the policies that the Republicans put forward? Because already there are people in the conservative movement who say, oh, no, bailouts. I thought we were against bailouts. How do you make sense of our current moment? Well, I think the first thing to do is to recognize that the moment is unprecedented. Um, The only similar uh, historic uh, example is the uh, Spanish flu, and that was 1918. I don't think there's anyone today alive who has a memory of that. You know, I mean, it's 102 years ago. So (laughs) even if you were alive then, you you were a baby. Right. Um, So I think we have to have some type of intellectual modesty as we consider what is happening to our country and what might happen in the future. Um, You're absolutely right. This will change uh, conservatism. It will change politics. It will change American uh, society um, in ways that we can't fully predict. So as a conservative, um, I'm always trying to be modest, uh, you know, about um, human capabilities and human knowledge, you know, and remembering that we're all uh, fallen creatures. Um, And so we really don't know what will happen. But as we analyze these events, we need to think about them 
uh, again, in terms of the human dignity of every uh, individual. Um, and, and so to the extent that people need help uh, when the government is essentially shutting down the economy, um, I think that help is appropriate. Well, right. You know, one of the things that people have been talking about quite a bit on social media in the last few days has been, hey, if you like the empty shelves at Walmart, you've got your first inkling of what it would be like to live in a socialist country, (laughs) you know, which is really a true statement because you continue to get shipments to Walmart every day. So those shelves get filled up again with these essentials that people are hoarding during the panic that's going on. But what about the future of capitalism in the United States at a time when you see a lot of millennials and younger generations? embracing socialism naively, I would argue. But what do you think this moment could mean for strengthening the American resolve to keep capitalism, our system of economic, you know, how it works out in our economy, that we we don't want to go socialist because we've had a taste of what it might look like if we were socialists? No, it would be a real shame. I mean, we we see that, um, you know, American private sector ingenuity, I think, is ramping up now in response to the crisis. We're seeing a lot of different um, a race to uh, therapeutic treatment or even to a potential vaccine. Right. That's a public-private partnerships at work. Um, you see the American supply chain and all the glory. I mean, they're, they're, you know, there are empty shelves now, but there are no shortages. Right. Uh, because America is able to feed itself. It has always been, and that's a consequence of our, of our uh, system of, uh, of the free markets and um, uh, free enterprise. So uh, I think what's needed now is for people uh, to point out, look, this is, we are a, a free society, uh, we respect individual freedom, and we are seeing um, the fruits of that as our society adapts very quickly um, to what is happening. We also need to recognize that um, you know, uh, capitalism rests on uh, social supports, and without a strong church or strong families, you're really going to have trouble convincing young people uh, that the free market is always the answer. Yeah. And so I think we need to really redouble our efforts to talk about uh, religion in the public space, yes. we need to talk about the strength of the American family and the two-parent family. And we would know that with family and religion as firm supports, uh, you, have the, you, know, you have the structure in which you can participate in the free economy. So that's kind of how I, I approach these questions. So in other words, should we put more emphasis then in the conservative movement on the three-legged stool again? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And um, I think any conservatism that doesn't include social conservatism uh, is, is a dead letter in yeah. America. Yeah. Um, because that's, I mean, that is just the backbone of the conservative movement in this country are, are um, religious believers. Yeah. And Absolutely, so, and honest, and that's the way that we get through times like this too. You know, for sure, <laughs> you yep. can't rely on government in a time like this. You need to rely on something much stronger. Yeah, yeah, and you're so right about that. That's uh, that, again, I think uh, conservatism needs to look at these social foundations for a free society, even more than uh, everything we enjoy from the market. Well, you know what's interesting to me, Matthew, is is people talk about Trump as being really a, a bizarre moment in political history. Here's somebody who was, you know, known for his larger than life celebrity persona and, you know, his divorce in the 80s and, you know, all this stuff, the celebrity stuff that he was known for, yet a very successful businessman. He comes along he really endears himself to millions of Americans, wins the election. Everybody's stunned. Now he's here. He's done an awful lot of good things from the point of view of conservatives. But has Trump changed conservatism in terms of the movement itself? Because you're not going to get another 
another Trump down the road. He may be able to be elected a second time. But after that, a lot of conservatives are saying, what will the conservative movement look like from here? Are we going to revert back to the establishment sort of GOP? Or are we going to have a new guy who's going to try to be like Trump? How do you think that might play out in terms of how the movement itself sees itself? Oh, I mean, that's a that's a really good question. And um, again, I, I, the answer is, is really unknowable. I mean, if you just look at Ronald Reagan, for example, when he left office uh, in 1989, the establishment really did um, reassert itself. Yep. And so there's the potential of that happening again once uh, Donald Trump is no longer the president. Um, at the same time, there are people who identified as Reaganites uh, uh, continuing up until today. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... To, to the degree that many conservatives view Donald Trump as a successful president, I think you'll see that as well. People saying, well, look, we need to think about issues in the way that Donald Trump did. And I think that means kind of viewing, um, you know, things through the lens of what's going to make America stronger, right? Um, kind of looking out for America first ahead of other nations, um, because those nations, according to President Trump, are looking for, out for themselves first. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it means a, a real atten- attention to the issue of immigration. Um, uh, and I think it also means kind of an emphasis on the forgotten American. Yeah. Uh, which is, you know, by the way, something that President Reagan also talked about a lot. Um, and forgetting those lessons, uh, I think, did the Republican Party a lot of ill right. Uh, right. during the 1990s and 2000s. Yeah. So, we shouldn't forget them again. Well, the other thing is when I reflect back on the Reagan years, Reagan got a lot of guff from the media, obviously, you know, Reaganomics and all the stuff that all of us remember from that time period. But he and Tip O'Neill worked together. I mean, there was some bipartisanship that went on during the 80s, despite some of the political rancor that was also present. Now we have a progressive movement and a Democrat party that is so radical that it's just one Trump attack after another. Let's go through the Kavanaugh situation. Let's go through the Gorsuch stuff. Let's go through the Mueller report and the impeachment and all that. I mean, how do you have bipartisanship anymore when you have a Democrat party that has gone so far left and doesn't even seem to want to work with the president. Yeah, it's very hard. I mean, it was hard during Reagan's uh, time, too, especially on foreign policy. Um, but uh, it, it's very hard now. We are more polarized. Um, we, we are more uh, ideological. And both parties are kind of sorted by their political beliefs. Uh, and it makes it very difficult to come to a shared understanding and agreement. Uh, though uh, in emergencies, uh, like it seems the United States is experiencing right now as we speak, uh, you do see uh, a lot of partisanship being tossed aside. So yes, yes. That's, we can, <laughs> partisanship is something we can indulge when the stakes are relatively low. When they get high, uh, it is somewhat reassuring. Very true. Uh, to see people coming together, at least trying to solve the problem. I mean, who, there probably will be downside to, to that uh, in the long run, but uh, at least now that they're kind of putting their differences aside. Yeah, that's nice to see now and then. Very quickly, Matthew, I know we're about to run out of time, but how would you like to see Republicans and the right in general tackle the nation's domestic problems in the next four years? What needs to be addressed? Well, I think the uh, largest problem we're going to face is um, uh, men in particular dropping out of the workforce. And um, the issue there is, you know, men without economic prospects don't make very good husbands. Right. And you need families uh, to, to raise children uh, and, and to really form children's characters. You need a two-parent family. And so every obstacle we have to family formation in this country 
I think um, the, Repub- the conservative movement and the Republican Party really need to address. And so that would be kind of how I'd frame an economic agenda. Very good. Very, very good. Matthew Continenti from the American Enterprise Institute. Check them out at AEI.org. Matthew, thank you so much for being with us. It was great to talk to you. Thank you. All right. You take care, and we'll be back on Janet Meffer today. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Bible League. Your gift of $35 will send seven Bibles to Christians in need, and your gift of $100 will send 20 Bibles. And right now, with a matching gift, your gift will be doubled. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. First of all, thank you to everybody who has been joining in and helping us help Bible League get the word of God to persecuted Christians across the world. I know that these are very uncertain times right now, but I am just so grateful for Janet Mefford today, listeners' commitment to getting the Bible into the hands of our brothers and sisters who need it the most. We are trying to get 1,200 Bibles to persecuted Christians by the end of April, and for a $35 gift, you can send seven Bibles. A $100 gift will send 20 Bibles, and right now there's a Bible for Bible match going on. So Friends of Bible League will match every gift made by Janet Meffer Today listeners. Isn't that great? So once we meet our goal of 1,200 Bibles, that number will be doubled to 2,400 Bibles with the match. Here's how you can help. Just call 800-YES-WORD. That's W-O-R-D. That's 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a Bible League banner to click at JanetMeffer.com. Again, that phone number to call is 800-YES-WORD. And we're going to talk some more about this wonderful ministry now with Michael Woolworth, who is Senior Director of Broadcast Media at Bible League International. Michael, welcome. It's great to have you with us. Janet, I've long admired uh, your passion and your uh, commitment to uh, help us think biblically about uh, the world and everything in it. So what an honor for uh, for Bible League and for me personally to uh, tackle what is arguably the number one issue facing the global church today, uh, Janet, and that's what you've been addressing, persecuted believers, people that are singled out targeted, monitored, threatened with death simply because they believe Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. So thanks for a few minutes today to address this topic. Oh, Michael, it's my honor, and I love what Bible League is doing. The persecuted church is very much on my heart and mind all the time, as listeners will attest, and it's true of the audience as well. There is a great deal of concern Mm -hmm. for our brothers and sisters around the world. Can you give us a little overview of what Bible League is doing? I know many listeners are very familiar with what you do, but for those who don't know so much about Bible League, and particularly this Project Philip Bible study that you conduct with new Christians. Give us a little sense of what you guys are up to around the world. Our Genesis came Good Friday, 1938, a conspicuous couple in a conspicuous part of the world. Their names were Chapman. He was on his deathbed, had, 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 had experienced a heart attack. An elder of his church, Janet, came and prayed over this man named William Chapman and prayed that when his health was restored that God would give him a ministry. Of course, there was this great expectation that health would come back. And when it did, out of faithful obedience, William and Betty Chapman began knocking on doors in the Chicago area, asking people, if you have a Bible, if you don't have a Bible, when you promise to read it, can we give you one? So they had a deep burden to engage people with the scriptures, and we've never wavered from that original charge. Now, we've learned to refine 
ministry over the years, but over 82 years of ministry, and I, I'm always reluctant to share big numbers or make our eyes gloss over. But let me tell you, 52 million people have been reached with the gospel. Uh, Four million have been trained to share Christ. Uh, about 75,000 churches have been planted with assistance from Bible League support. Let me break that down. About 5,000 people are reached today. 400 are share, uh, trained to share Christ. And a new church is planted with support from Bible League about every three hours in the world. We do this in six regions, including the U.S., Janet. We do it in places like the Middle East, Asia, Africa, Latin America, and Europe. And um, we do this primarily through something called Project Philip. Who is Philip? He's the evangelist in Acts 8 who led the Ethiopian eunuch to faith in Christ. If you know the text, you know the eunuch is reading from Isaiah. And he asked this man, Philip, hey, I can't understand this. Can you explain it to me? And Philip said, this is about the Messiah who has come, the suffering servant, Jesus. And so we know that Ethiopian eunuch is baptized. He's connected to a local church there. And he takes the gospel back to Ethiopia. We have every reason to believe that the, the, the growth of the church uh, in Africa came from that story. So with uh, that in mind, we help create Phillips all over the world, Jan. It's about an 8- to 12-week Bible study. It's Christianity 101. How is Jesus both God and man? What's it mean to die to self? What's it mean to put on Christ? When Jesus says, if you want to be great in this kingdom, you learn to serve. And so that is coupled with the Gospel of John. And how many of us have used John to introduce people to Christ? And so that's pretty much uh, what we do. We also have uh, literacy programs. We give the gift of literacy. We introduce people to Christ because the backdrop for that program uh, is the Bible, and then there's also church planning and some other programs that we offer. But today what we want to do, Janet, is make good on the promise that we make to everybody who goes through Project Philip and professes Christ, and that is we promise them a Bible in their own language at the end. And so for us to be able to help those 1,200 Christians that we've earmarked with a Bible in their own language, we're asking your listeners to come alongside and help us today to reach out to these persecuted believers. Right, which is such an incredible ministry that you have and so vital right now in, in terms of what is going on worldwide with the global persecution of Christians in so many of these key areas that Bible League serves. So this is what it's all about. You can help by calling 800-YES-WORD for a $35 gift. You can send seven Bibles. We do have this goal of sending 1,200 Bibles to persecuted Christians by the end of April. You can make a big difference and it just is such an important ministry that that needs to continue, despite I know some of the uncertainty that a lot of us are experiencing right now. But call that number. It's 800-YES-WORD and pray about what the Lord might be leading you to give. And I know, again, this is a great sacrifice for many people at this time, but what better ministry is there than getting the Bible into the hands of new believers? Now, one of those believers I know, Michael, that you've talked about is a former teen jihadist whom you met last year who became a Christian. I wonder if you could briefly tell us that story, because this just kind of encapsulates encapsulates everything that Bible League is about. Yeah, you know, I was in a community literally miles from the border of Syria. We, they, the, the family that we encountered had left a refugee camp. We don't know if his dad died fighting for or against ISIS, but his mother would have left Syria in a full burqa. This was a radicalized family, eight kids. And I can tell you that Ahmed at the time was about 12. He had been um, recruited by a violent imam to be a suicide bomber, Janet. He mm. had agreed in the name of Allah to kill himself and to kill Israelis, Christians, and dissenting Muslims. They'd pick the time, they'd pick the place. 
Long story short, his mother became a believer. She was introduced to Christ through our literacy program, was taught to read and write in Arabic by two Christian women, and she led seven of her kids to Christ. But by the time that it happened, Ahmed again was radicalized, wanted them dead. (laughs) She prayed nonstop for his salvation, and when it came... The radicals that he hung around with literally beat this, at that time, 14 years of age, uh, Ahmed, nearly to death. They put a bounty on his head. They said, we're going to find you, and we're going to finish the job. The family leaves literally in the middle of the night with the shirts on their back. We encounter them. I did this uh, last year, several villages over. Here's the story. Ahmed and I are sitting uh, kneecap to kneecap. The elders that pastor him uh, were there to verify everything that he was saying. And he said to me, and, you know, I, I said, uh, I asked him, Jan, I said, Ahmed, what's your Bible mean to you? He, he, he could open his Bible and he could see right here, Jesus said they'll hate you because he hated me first. Right. He said, look, Jesus said, you're going to have trials and tribulations in this world, but take heart. I've overcome the world. And Janet, a 14-year-old kid, I could tell he was a serious student of the Word. And he went on to tell me, with tears in his eyes, through a translator, I spoke virtually no Arabic, he spoke no English, but we were kindred spirits when he said to me, he said, Michael, we need Bibles. He said, we're not asking for an end of the persecution. We know that God is working through it. But he said, Christians here need to have the Bible in Arabic. That's the language they speak. He said, they need to endure and they need to persevere. And uh, Janet, the, 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 the elders around us were telling us, they said, he has led about 150 young men to Christ between the ages <sighs> of 10 and 20. They said, they recruit them very young. And because they're refugees, they promised them some financial incentive. Of course, the, the promises that come with 70, 72 virgins in heaven, but he's the real deal. And Janet, um, I want to make good on this promise to Ahmed. I said, Ahmed, every one of those Bibles you're praying for right now, they're coming. Yep, they're They're coming. coming. They're coming. What a story. And that, boy, I know you could tell so many other stories like that about some of our fellow brothers and sisters on the other side of the world, but this is what it's all about. We are trying to get 1,200 Bibles to persecuted Christians, just like Ahmed, the story that Michael Woolworth just told. This is a really important ministry. We do need your help, and if you give a $35 gift today, you can send seven Bibles, and it will be matched, and we will end up being able to double that number to 2,400 Bibles. Wouldn't that be incredible if we could do that? We need your help, though. Just call 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. Or again, there is a Bible League banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Again, that number, that toll-free phone number is 800-YES-WORD. Michael Woolworth with Bible League International. Thank you so much, my friend, for being with us. God bless you and keep up the good work. You too, Janet. All right. God bless and thank you again. 800-YES-WORD is the number to call. Help us send these Bibles today. And we'll be right back on Janet Mefford today. The healthcare open enrollment period has ended. Did you miss it? Don't go a whole year without having a healthcare program. Sign up with Liberty HealthShare. As a Christian healthcare sharing ministry, Liberty HealthShare is not insurance, so you can still sign up. In fact, you can sign up any time of year, and there are no contracts. Starting as low as $199 a month, Liberty HealthShare has memberships for singles, couples, and families, so you can choose the ideal program for your situation. Plus, Liberty HealthShare has no network, so you're free to pick your own doctors, hospitals, and providers. Liberty HealthShare 
Care is a nonprofit ministry, so your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Go to libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT for more information. LibertyHealthShare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford, and we're partnering with the Bible League on Stand With Them, Bibles for the Persecuted Church. Paul reminded Timothy that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Persecution is defined as suffering for the sake of Christ and His glory, and it comes in many forms all over the world. In India, it's being shunned by Hindu family members. In China, it's the loss of church buildings. In the Middle East, it could be jail or even death at the hands of extremists. Isaiah is a new Christian praying for the nourishment that comes only from God's Word. Send him a Bible for only $5. $100 sends Bibles to 20 Christians, and a limited time match will double your gift. Help us help Bible League send the hope of God's Word to 1,200 persecuted believers. All you have to do is call 800-YES-WORD. That's 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. 800-YES-WORD. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. I want to turn to that great sage, Whoopi Goldberg. No, she's not a great sage. She is a host on The View, however. And she says some strange things sometimes. And sometimes she says things that are funny. And often she says things that are just dead wrong. And sometimes she'll say something that is on the money. Now, I want to play a couple of cuts from The View, which I don't like to do normally, but I think it makes a good point in this case. Whoopi Goldberg talking about the coronavirus. And before she makes this remark, you'll hear President Trump responding to the criticism over the fact that he refers to this coronavirus as the Chinese virus. Listen to cut one. Well, China uh, was putting out information which was false that our military gave this to them. That was false. And uh, rather than having an argument, I said... uh, I have to call it where it came from. It did come from China. So I think it's a very accurate term. But no, I didn't appreciate the fact that China was saying that our military gave it to them. Our military did not give give it to anybody. I mean, and clearly he's trying to pin the blame on China, but I don't recall hearing him. I don't recall hearing China say the military gave it to them. I, all I remember is seeing lots of people trying to quell this pandemic. Am I crazy? Well, you may not be crazy, but you are misinformed. And it would seem if you are to go on national national TV that you would look something up before saying that it's debunked and it's not true. If it's something coming out of the mouth of the president of the United States, he probably has fair reason to report it. Oh, wait, here's CNN, Friday, March 13th. This is Dateline Hong Kong. A prominent Chinese official has promoted a conspiracy theory that the United States military could have brought the novel coronavirus to China and it did not originate in the city of Wuhan as thought. Posting to his more than 300,000 followers on Twitter, the foreign ministry spokesman republished a video of the director of the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention addressing the U.S. Congressional Committee on March 11th. And anyway, it goes on from there. But CNN is reporting this, that this Chinese official, very prominent Chinese official, was trying to blame the coronavirus on the U.S. military. It's right here on your favorite website, Whoopi. All good liberals read CNN. So that was a silly remark. Now, she makes another remark, which in a backwards kind of way 
is actually very insightful. Listen to cut two. And, you know, people, as we've seen, people start punching people, Asian folks, out. Yes. They, you know, will attack. So we need to stop calling it or labeling it like it's they did it to us. Mother well, Nature really did this to us. Okay, stop for a second, because that is silly in some ways, what she just said, but there's a nugget of truth in it. She is referencing some of these attacks on Asian people that have occurred in places like New York and overseas in the UK. There have been reports of Asian people being attacked and people saying, I hate the coronavirus. You brought it here. Punch, punch. Not good. We don't want people being attacked. That's ridiculous. People wandering the streets of Asian descent are not responsible for what happened in Wuhan. Although I will maintain what the president is saying about the Chinese virus beginning in China is 100% accurate. When she says, though, at the end of that clip that Mother Nature is the one who is responsible for the coronavirus, she gets it wrong in that there is no such thing as Mother Nature. That's a secularist's way of referring to God. And she is right. She is right. Now, China obviously was the source of it. And we still don't know anything in particular about the zero patient and how this whole thing was concocted. Did it come from bats? Was it bioterrorism? There are a lot of things we don't know at this point, but we do know it came from China. But ultimately, don't all things come from God? Good and bad? Isaiah 45, 7, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. We are uncomfortable sometimes as Christians trying to attribute what we see as evil to a pure and holy God. But God himself says that he is sovereign over all things and he creates calamity. The word of God says this. So it isn't for us to try to explain God's words away. It's up to us to understand God's words. I saw a story here out of San Francisco via NBC News where they're on total lockdown and One of the people quoted in the story said, everything is out of our control. And I thought that's not a bad realization to have. Everything is out of our control. Isn't that life though? We really believe that because we have so many modern conveniences and we have great pharmacological industries and we have all of these things at our disposal at any given moment, and I praise God for that. But we can sometimes be lulled into a false sense that we can control everything. Well, I'm sure the people building the Tower of Babel thought that at one time as well, but we're getting a little bit of a comeuppance. And I was thinking about Revelation and what Revelation 8 and 9 in particular have to say about the Lamb opening the seventh seal and all of the trumpets and all of the plagues that came from it. And I turned to Revelation chapter 9, and this is after the fifth angel blew his trumpet and a star fell from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. And then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. It goes on, and people will long to die. They'll seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. And then it goes on to say, the sixth angel blew his trumpet. And I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. Do you hear that? The four angels who had been prepared For the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. Now, this is at the end of time, clearly. But by the time you get down to verse 20, and I should back up a little bit, it says in verse 
18, by these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Now, when you go to some of the commentaries on this, and there are a number of commentaries that are really, really good in this case, uh, but one I had turned to to explain this, Revelation 9, verse 20, and the fact that these people did not repent when they had seen all these plagues, and it's reminiscent of Pharaoh at the time of the Exodus, all these plagues, let my people go. Okay, I'm going to send another plague. Let my people go. I'll send another plague because Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he kept saying no and he kept saying no and he kept saying no. So God kept sending plagues and he would not repent. Listen to this, because this is from the John MacArthur commentary. The very reason that only one third were killed in that passage was to provide a witness and opportunity for the remaining two thirds to repent and turn to God. Like Jezebel of the church at Thyatira, who is a type for the earth dwellers of the end, they failed to see God's gracious mercy in giving them additional time to repent. And there is a quote here from Joel too. Now, therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping and with mourning. So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness. And he relents from doing harm. Now, in Pharaoh's case, we know what happened. But again, now in Jeremiah 5, O Lord, are not your eyes on the truth? You have stricken them, but they have not grieved. You have consumed them, but they have refused to receive correction. They have made their faces harder than rock. They have refused to return. Therefore, I said, surely these are poor. They are foolish, for they do not know the way of the Lord, the judgment of their God. And MacArthur goes on to say, men complain most frequently, that if only they had more definite information, they would repent and believe. Is that really the case? They need more information? Our experience has been that the needed information is more often a smokescreen for a rebellious and unrepentant heart, which has no intention of submitting to God. The death of the one-third of the Earth's remaining population will be the most catastrophic disaster to strike the Earth since the flood. Yet, in an amazing display of hardness of heart, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent. It is unimaginable that after years of suffering and death under the terrifying judgments from God, coupled with the powerful preaching of the gospel by the 144,000 Jewish evangelists, the two witnesses, an angel in the sky and other believers, the survivors will still refuse to repent. And isn't that a lesson for us? Will our nation look upon this pandemic, which has been unprecedented in our lifetimes, and say maybe the Lord is trying to send us a message that we need to repent, that we need to return to him, that we need to fall on our knees before him and recognize everything is out of our control. And if we are given this new drug, which is an old drug, this hydroxychloroquine used to treat malaria, and this is the cure-all, at least for some of the patients, to shorten the duration of the coronavirus, that itself is a gift of God. We don't know how these things will play out. But all things are from the hands of God, even these calamities. And it should make us bow down to him in fear, in holy, reverent fear of a God who holds all things in the palm of his hand, including our very lives. We need to take it very seriously as Christians and really get that message out to a world. Will they repent? We'll see. 
Thank you for joining us on Janet Mefford today. We'll see you next time. God bless.